0: Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hi everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. This episode is virtually a celebrity sighting for us with one of the smartest people in commerce and a podcasting legend, at least in the commerce space, Jason Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer of Publicis and co-host of the legendary Jason and Scott Show, joined Rob and me to talk what the heck is going on and brazen predictions of the future. It's a mega episode and well worth the listen, even at one X speed. Here we go. So Jason, thank you so much for for joining us on our podcast because we are both avid listeners of your podcast. Uh, It's just tremendous to have you on. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Oh my gosh! Thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, the feeling's entirely reciprocal. I've been uh, listening since you launched. So,
0: oh my gosh! Wow! <laughs> I just got a just got a little celebrity fever here, but thank you. Uh, so, on episode 223, which as a number is amazing, Rob and I—it turns out I just found out from Matt—have done 47 of these, and we already feel like it's what? Like, what does it feel like? Does it? St- Every time when you do your podcast, is it still cool you and Scott get on, just shoot the breeze and sounds just feels good? Or are you?
1: Yeah, mostly. I mean, I'll be honest. Uh, a lot of what I do for work is what I would be doing for fun um, yeah. and certainly the podcast. So, hey, that makes me sound lame. Um, but uh, the the podcast is certainly one of those things. It's it's mostly fun after two hundred and twenty three episodes uh scott kind of feels like my work husband which is a little weird um <laughs> i know uh, the feeling <laughs> it, it is I, no, but scott's a good friend and uh i do like it is a it's a a forced reason to connect with him every single week which is i wish i did that with more of my good friends uh that i don't live near uh so i feel like uh that's fun and it mostly just flows organically like if for no other reason then we're too lazy and disorganized to really like plan it and do a lot of production
0: <laughs> i appreciate those things uh well on that episode you both did it, it aired on june 19th for those that haven't listened and want to find it you did a deep dive on the impact of covid and i highly recommend it to any of our listeners to just get a, a just a really smart look at what's been happening. But of all the data that you discussed on that, what are a a few of the things that most surprised you of this period or most stood out the most to you?
1: Um, Well, you know, the the things where I feel like I I tend to be at odds with other people's initial impressions is um, uh, the likely longevity of this semi-abnormal situation we're in right now right like lots of us and i i'm in this boat too like i desperately want this to be over i desperately want to return to some semblance of normalcy um but you know really when you look at the fullness of the picture and you you try to be realistic and and i i have the luxury of getting to talk to a lot of um specialists in the field uh we're really advising all our retail and brand clients to to plan on this current environment through the end of 2021 and and when I say that to friends and family, it both shocks them and is, uh, and usually depresses them.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I feel that
1: yeah I, uh, I, had,
2: I moved out to the Berkshires from downtown Boston and didn't renew my lease and and uh, I told my parents that you know my me and the the kids were, were coming out here and for the at least a year, and they they thought we were crazy. They' are like, there's no way that this thing isn't going to be wrapped
1: up in a whole year. It's like, well
0: I don't know. <laughs> the virus says otherwise.
1: <laughs> no, you're. Uh, you you probably made a smart call. Uh, my employer, like super nice, they came out really early and said, "Hey, no matter what, we're not making anyone come back to work uh, in in 2020." So if you want to make a decision like Rob, like you don't you don't have to worry about us suddenly recalling you to the office. Uh, for um,
0: yeah, our, our employer, uh, <laughs> Rob is the co-founder of, uh, did exactly the same thing, which just helped families plan and figure out what they're, what they're going to
1: yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, it's no fun being, being in limbo. Uh, and somewhat similar to Rob's situation, I, I have several brother-in-laws that all live in luxuriously spacious um, homes and lots in the suburbs. And I live in a, a what at the moment feels like a way too small condo in downtown Chicago. And ordinarily, you, there's this social trade-off, right? Like space and yeah. comfort versus like the amenities of the restaurants and the bars and the city center. Of course, now all the amenities are gone and all we have is the lack of, of space and my, my four-and-a-half-year-old on top of me all the time. So I'm super bitter about uh, at my brother-in-law's that made made better decisions than me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> one, thing, one thing that's I'm, – I'm wondering if you're seeing any data on this. One thing that's so interesting about this – shift for so many people being out of the city. I, I was just on a call with one of my employees that just is in Stowe, Vermont for the foreseeable future, which is, I mean, that's far away from a lot of things. And out here in the Berkshires, we don't have Instacart delivery. You know, Instacart is claiming over 50% of grocery digital sales in the United States. Um, their growth is obviously crushing it. They, they they were profitable for the first time, sort of unexpectedly. Um, but like the way that we do click and collect out here can't rely on Instacart. It's, it's through local grocers that are sort of hacking it together and, and employees that are carrying stuff out to your trunk. And it, and it just is some of them you have to call up on the phone and place your order verbally and then drive up. But they're all figuring it out. And I just wonder, one of the things that, that uh, you mentioned in the podcast is there is this trend towards consolidation of the large grocers. So after COVID it, the top three grocers are going to be like 63% market share in grocery, which is what people are talking about. But you know what, what I'm experiencing out here in the country is that it's sort of the opposite. There's the, the local grocers are getting a ton of business. So how, how is this, how do you square those two points of view? Is it the grocers in the middle that'll get crushed?
1: No, it, uh, it is more the, like you, you may live in an anomaly and I, I certainly hope you do. Um, the, I talk a lot about, you know, COVID isn't dramatically changing things. It's accelerating things that were already happening. So, one of the sad trends in the US um, was this evolution of uh, what they call food deserts, right? Like, the increasingly, uh, good grocery stores go, uh, gravitate to affluent communities um, and less affluent communities, grocery stores move away. And so, they, the official definition of a food desert, I think, is um, you live more than two miles from a, a, a full service grocer. Uh, so there are increasingly n- large number of pockets of these places in America where you, you have to go more than two miles to get like, fresh produce. Um, and uh, in many places in the country, that, that the reason it's not a food desert is because it's an independent uh, grocery store per, you know, uh, per your situation. In general, grocery is not a super profitable business. Uh, most of those grocers did not have a huge amount of cash on hand. Like the average grocer had 19 days of available cash. Um, so if you're in a competitive market where you were competing with a, a Walmart or a Target that could sell groceries and shoes and home goods, um, you, you probably lost share uh, in this uh, market and you barely were making it before, so now you're not making it and you're going to close and Walmart and Kroger are gonna absorb, absorb that business. In your case, where you're only uh, served by an independent, COVID may be benefiting your independent and keeping them in business. Obviously, they were an essential business. Uh, your local shoe store is gone, like, if, if there yeah. was one, um, right? Because they weren't allowed to stay open, they didn't get any revenue for 60 days, they like, probably didn't have a website. Um, and, and uh, so a lot of like specialty retailers will go away. The hardware store, all, like a bunch of tragic stuff. Um, but even your grocer, I hope they're doing great. Well, they likely had a, a spike in demand. They may have had a commensurate or worse spike in costs. Because the picking costs are just brutal for these guys. Yeah. So both like, uh, like many retailers had to pay bonuses to employees to get them to come to work. So their labor costs went up. They had to do a lot more cleaning. They may have changed their hours. Um, the, the They had all these supply chain challenges. And so, you know, did I did I have like to bring in extra people to receive goods? And um, in general, like even the retailers that had a nice spike in sales did not have a commensurate spike in earnings, right? Like this has been a real, like you know, it's shifted most people from in-store to digital and that's less profitable and it's shifted people from, general merchandise to produce and that's less profitable. It's uh, people are buying bigger pack sizes. That's less profitable for your local grocer, right? When you sell a case of, of soup instead of a can of soup. Um, so all those things together, uh, it's a brutal environment. Like again, your grocer is better off being the exclusive food provider in your community than someplace where they're having to compete with a, a Kroger or a Walmart, but um, it's, It's a, it's a difficult time to be a retailer. I'd rather be a food retailer than an apparel retailer in a mall though.
2: Yeah, no kidding. It's, you know, it's interesting about that. The, the, the major trend. Um, One of my favorite books in the retail space is the Walmart effect, which is, I mean, at this point it's about 15 years old. And it was obviously before Amazon was a Goliath and the book covered a lot about the monopsony or monopolistic buying power that, that Walmart had um, and the way that it could really put price pressure on uh, suppliers and, and really push their margins down. I, I got to wonder if there's so much consolidation in grocery with just three change, having three, 63% of the market, the, the manufacturers almost regardless of how big the manufacturer is, they, they've got to
1: expect margin pressure out of this situation, right? Oh, for sure. Both like direct margin pressure, like the those top grocers that get more share are going to just extort, you know, uh, lower margins from their, uh, uh, for, for the, the wholesalers, but uh, also indirect, like all these other trade uh, terms, like they're gonna want more co-op and longer return um, rights and you know, more, more uh, uh, merchandising accrual funds and all these other ways. Uh, I, I mean, that, that talking point is not in my, my spiel by accident and it's targeted at all those brands to get them ready. Uh, for this this new world, when it's it's going going to be less pleasant for them, I think I, I'm familiar with that book. I, there's a, a famous story in there about uh, Walmart putting a pickle manufacturer out of business by selling like five gallon jars of pitch, pickles for like ninety nine cents.
2: Yeah, yeah, I remember the stories. Um, be, God, begins with a K is the name of the the brand that, um, they put out. But
1: yeah, was the, it Claussen maybe?
2: Yeah, Claussen. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, the you know very much related to, to this is the consolidation of the trade spend but also the shift in the way that the media dollars are being allocated i remember the cmo of G got on stage a couple of years ago and said advertising is dead you know and and i think what he meant was the the share of advertising that would go through traditional brand channels the tvs of the world the newspapers of the world um was losing its effectiveness and there's this overall mega trend towards performance marketing from from these traditional harder to measure brand channels. And we're seeing right now for a a lot of the folks that we've been talking to um, the major advertisers in the brand manufacturing space are not signing direct to publisher media deals. They're not agreeing to upfronts they're requiring cancelable contracts and, um, and or they're shifting tremendous amount of dollars for at least 2020 over to performance marketing, you know, Instacart sort of luckily lit up their advertising capabilities this year, just before this stuff happened. And I, I got to wonder, in, in addition to the large retailers having more market share and therefore being able to, you know, demand more from manufacturers, they're also going to be able, they're also going to see profitability rise with trade spend at a, at a ridiculous rate. I mean, what, What's your prediction on this? Is this kind of
1: the death knell of TV as as branding, or or what, what do you see coming out of this? It's tricky because I I feel like very long term we could see that exact shift, right? Like the it, my uh, I'm in a weird job. I uh, like I influence a a wide variety of agencies that Publisus owns. Most of those are advertising agencies, right? So the super common conversation is around media mix, right? And, you know, are those dollars going to NBC, CBS, or uh, uh, Facebook or Rundell, which is Target's uh, uh, digital advertising network. Um, And uh, so lots of conversations about the right strategy of apportioning that mix and how budgets shift. And I, I do think there's a macro trend that more of those dollars are shifting from like very difficult to measure media like broadcast to the, uh, th- this more um, transactional media and uh, certainly more measurable media uh, in the digital platforms. At the moment, the version of that that's most shifting though, is most of the dollars that are landing in Instacart um, advertising or Walmart Media Network or Target Rundell or Kroger Precision Marketing, all, all of these new retail marketing platforms that emerged, um, those dollars aren't coming from the CMO and they're not coming from the Super Bowl budget. They're actually coming from the other parts of the retailer's trade budget. So, um, so P and G was buying floor decals in Walmart and they were paying for tabs, uh, which is the print circular at Kroger. And now they're like, Hey, less people are walking into Walmart and Kroger, uh, but more people are shopping you digitally. So I'm going to move those dollars from that, in-store shopper marketing program to that digital marketing program. Um, But the dollars were always earmarked for that retailer. So it's a a win for the guy that runs the digital advertising network. Um, It's a lose for someone else at that retailer that like had that old bucket of money. And most retailers view that as kind of um, a zero sum game. So what they all want to happen, and I just haven't seen a lot of evidence that it truly has happened outside of Amazon, is CMOs shifting um, brand building awareness out of home advertising dollars in, into those those networks? I, I I don't have trouble believing it will happen, but just you know because of a lot of um, siloed budgets and competitive stakeholders and things, we we haven't seen as much of that yet.
2: Okay, so so then I, I want to stick on the the marketing and branding theme here in terms of COVID changes for a bit because. I, I'm, I, I really am interested in trying to tease out exactly the different ways that brands interact with consumers on, on a go forward basis as, as compared to uh, in the past. One, one thing that I think um, you, you and uh, Scott talked about was uh, pantry stuffing and how one of the challenges that, you know, if you sell toilet paper, all of a sudden somebody has a year's worth of toilet paper, they're not going to restock. That's a challenge for you. Or somebody buys a year's worth of craft or a years worth of candles they're not going to restock for a while. So now the problem of a crafter Campbell's becomes to encourage consumption. Yeah. And it, it occurred to me in listening to that, that um, first of all, that's an interesting problem to have. And it's not a place that most brands focus. They don't focus on the consumption. They, po- they focus on the transaction. And I, I wonder if that's actually a uh lasting trade like if they focus on consumption and how it can be used and why it's good why wouldn't that also be a good way to also sell new product beyond just the restocks and so so what do you think there is
1: is there any evidence that, that any of these early campaigns are working um well so i'm not sure there's a ton of evidence yet like intuitively i'm with you right like uh we all go for the path of least resistance like water always flows to the lowest point right and and if the easiest way to goose your sales is to um, have, you know, compelling campaigns that that uh, juice acquisition, then that's where all, all marketers are going to go. Uh, but when something like this happens that forces you to think about, uh, you know, creating demand from other parts of the tube, squeezing the tube in the middle instead of at the end, um, the, like, once you're successful at that, like, why wouldn't you keep doing that? Like, of course you would, you would keep doing that, right? And so, you know, I think there are different categories that have a better shot, right? Like, if you're Campbell Soup, lots of things you can do with soup. Like, did you know you can make great dip when you're rewatching last year's Super Bowl, which is sad. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can have a great dip with that, right? And if, you, if you're craft, you're like, did you know your kid can do cool art with the macaroni in our, our packs of mac and cheese? Um, there are less plays for non-traditional uses for toilet paper, right? Like, I, I think I did make a joke that, man, like, the, the toilet paper company should really be promoting toilet paper in your neighbor's house for this. For, this for Halloween, Halloween. For Halloween? Yeah. Definitely. That's a yeah. great idea. Yeah. Uh, that, anyone who's <laughs> will will, willing it. to do that one for free. Yeah, that's a gift from me to you.
2: <laughs> how about uh, could you use toilet paper for paper mache? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. remember remember that goop trend that, that teenagers were into a few years ago that where Elmer's glue was just selling like hot cakes and they were creating this this like uh, kind of slime, weird- slime, yeah, slime, yeah. yeah.
1: It's uh, so slime is maybe my favorite consumer story of all times, right? Because we all desperately try to do these things on purpose. Like, how could we, you know, yeah. create some new use case for our product? How could we, you know, juice demand? And there's this like, as it turns out, sleepy family company that sells glue called Elmer's, right? And the most common size glue they sell is an eight ounce tube of glue, which lasts most families a lifetime, right? So so that, you know, that's it's like third or fourth generation, I forget the exact story. And, and you know, these guys have like linear increasing sales, but you know, there's not a lot of new demand for, for glue. And then, you know, some art teacher invents this new thing you could make that suddenly requires not ounces but gallons of Elmer's glue. Um and demand spikes through the roof and I've sat in on the like IRI and Nielsen presentations where they talk about like this thing bubbling up to the top of the radar and it 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 like Elmer's had to invent new containers that held way bigger kegs of glue to sell to consumers. And as the father of a four and a half year old, I'm assuring you that trend is not over. There's a <laughs> lot of slime in the room right next to me and we have bought a lot of Elmer's glue. So that's, yeah. a, that's an amazing story of uh, uh, guys just waking up one day to new demand. I don't, I don't know if you, there's an old Adobe commercial that's hysterical where uh, they show like a, a sleepy, dusty um, encyclopedia factory and nothing's happening. And suddenly, they start getting all these digital orders and they like spin up the printing presses and they're like, we're back, encyclopedias are in vogue again. And then they cut and there's some, uh, you know, four year old on the, the floor in, in a living room playing with an iPad, you know, accidentally ordering a bunch of encyclopedias. But.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Can you,
2: can you imagine, that would be a fun job though. Like if, I'm, I'm just thinking, uh, like the Charmin chief scientist or or head of R and D, CEO walks in the office and says, "I need you to figure out new ways for people to have fun with toilet paper."
1: Oh my god! Yeah, that, what great a job. great assignment. Uh, <laughs> there's um a a good CPG company out there called uh, Church and Dwight in New Jersey, and right. uh, so so they're they're like I think Arm and Hammer and Arm and uh, Hammer, uh, Hammer baking soda exactly. And I every time I see them, I tease them that I feel like that's the greatest marketing story in the world, and they're like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "Oh." Uh, go to the store, buy a 16-ounce uh, box of my product, bring it home, and immediately throw it down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you, like, that's brilliant. Like, the- you- I, I thought the Arm & Hammer, at some point, they,
2: they, um, they made the use case of deodorize your fridge yeah, and, and replace the Arm & Hammer. Oh. So freq- I mean, that was just an absolute killer brand expansion.
0: Well the other day I was doing a, a, a virtual a digital shelf virtual session and one of the guests was Scott Summer who is the head of innovation at Suretech which is the the brand that does duct tape and he was the the CMO at the time where all of a sudden kids started making you know clothing uh, oh, out of stuff duct tape. yeah yeah and so then he he saw that happening and said well now I can sell uh, make all of these different brands and connect up with you know hello kitty and all that kind of stuff and have virt- have proms with duct tape and so he was able to to sell for the same price much smaller rolls of duct tape with a hello kitty on them and make a ton more margin and do it direct so that, that story it's a similar yeah. story of
1: there's a lot of, a lot of those fun stories out there right like yeah. you, you think you're making work boots for for factory workers and a whole urban you know, uh, youth population decides it's the hip clothes for musicians. And,
0: Hello, Brooklyn, yeah.
1: Exactly. So
2: an- another, another big marketing trend here in the pandemic is there's a lot of categories where some type of trial of the product is part of the purchase. And um, I, you know, there's obviously the, the beauty centers in Macy's where they can try on the makeup. They're in clothing stores, you try on the clothes. Um, in grocery stores, they've got the sampling. I got to imagine car dealerships, you drive the car and so on and so forth. A lot of this stuff is obviously dead for now. Yeah. How, how much of it's dead forever? I mean, it, for the next 18 months, these are not going to be viable strategies. And you got folks like L'Oreal and others that are trying to digitize it. But but how much of this is is, is permanent?
1: Yeah. I So, I mean, the real answer uh, one of the things that makes me good at my job is I sound authoritative, um, and so whenever I <laughs> express a completely unfounded opinion, I I, I express it with conviction. Um, helpful Trey, comma, uh, please don't like invest your personal fortune <laughs> in the advice you're hearing out. like um, getting getting some backup. Uh, I, I don't think we really know. I think that's one of the things that's really up in the air right now. Um, I, I think there's a lot of uh, human nature in favor of wanting some version of those experiences, and so you know, to various degrees, we're seeing reinvention of a lot of those experiences, right? So you, the the makeup is an interesting one. Going back to COVID's a time machine, um, virtual try-on uh, of cosmetics was slowly overtaking physical try-on on co- of cosmetics before COVID, right? Like the technology was kind of just getting over that threshold where it was actually better. Like the first makeup try on systems were, you know, silly, right? Like it just kind of put a a patch of color somewhere in the vicinity of your lips. Um, and you'd, you'd turn or whatever, and it would stay on your cheek. Um, the newest technology, they're like, they're, you know, 3d mapping your face and, uh, and uh, texture mapping their products onto it and their hyper accurate color rendering. Um, and increasingly, women were saying, you know what, I would rather use Sephora's virtual try-on experience than trying on real lipsticks in the store because trying on real lipsticks was arduous. And now that trying on real lipsticks could potentially kill you, like the physical try-on's gone and they're all doubling down. So, you know, L'Oreal bought this company Modiface, um, which looked like a good investment at the time. Now it looks like a way better investment. A novel thing for me, at least I haven't heard of anyone else doing this, L'Oreal is, is uh, deploying Modiface on Amazon in Canada right now. So like the part of the Amazon product detail page uh, in Canada is not Amazon tech, but L'Oreal tech running on that product detail page. In the old days, every manufacturer was super frustrated because they all had to live in exactly the same product detail page that was ill-suited for a lot of product categories. Now you have at least one example of like their the, the brand's code living on that that product detail page, which is an interesting um, pivot. But then, yeah. so cosmetics, it seems like a no-brainer. We're, pro- you know, physical sampling is probably never gonna be as big a deal after COVID as it was before, because the other technologies are getting better and we're winning anyway. Um, sampling of uh, food in store, right? Like, that's a principal part of Costco's shopping experience. It's a major part of Trader Joe's experience. At the, like, for sure, we're not gonna see Open trays of food for people to, you know, grab and and graze on as they walk through the aisles. Um, We're not going to have the self-service trays, but at the moment, we don't want to encourage people to pull down their mask and put the food in their mouth in the store, right? And so, uh, uh, we're we're all waiting. Costco said they're going to deploy some new sampling experiences. We don't know exactly what they are. My guess is it's going to be sealed samples that you take home and try at home. Um, And so maybe that's just the way sampling goes is from an in-store occasion to a, a you know an at home between shopping occasion
2: yeah so we've got so far we've got major channel consolidation which is going to put margin pressure and, and financial pressure on manufacturers we've got a, a bunch of changes in how they reach the end shopper in terms of the marketing mix The um, one of the one of the reactions to this that we've seen is Manufacturers of all kinds investing in direct-to-consumer capabilities for, for the first time, or at least at the first time at the scale. You know, Pepsi famously launched Snacks.com. Shopify is now a 90 billion or or so valuation company, up from 40 billion pre-COVID. I shouldn't have sold my stock uh, in, in Shopify a while ago. Um, and you've got big commerce. I it's thought like, you were
1: breaking there. that you had a chance to sell Salsify to Shopify, but that's. Not <laughs> By the way, the, the saying those two company names is in the same sentence is so difficult. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, so it, so the the interesting thing is that a lot of people are down on this. You know, you have the failure of the of the places like Outdoor Voices and Brandless, but we we had uh, Susharita from Forrester um on at the digital shelf institute virtual summit and she was saying economically it makes no sense for most manufacturers to you know pick a pack and ship is direct to consumer this is ridiculous on the other hand you've got you know pepsi launching big and all these other things so like, what's where's the truth
1: yeah. uh i think it's somewhere in between um so uh Sutri and i are great friends uh and part of the fun is we don't always agree um uh, she's certainly right, like, the unit economics around selling uh, uh, $3 bags of chips as each is makes no sense. And consumers don't want it, right? Like, they don't want to individually place orders for all those products and get them separately. So it's, it's easy to say, like, yeah, w- you know, there should not be a, a website for Oreo cookies um, if you're Mondelez. Uh, so, and, I, and to that, I would say a couple of things. True, like, you shouldn't sell $3 uh, cookies direct to consumer. But you probably have something that you should be selling direct to consumer. In the case of Mondelez and Oreos, it's custom Oreos and custom uh, ba- packaging for the Oreos.
0: Yeah, uh, like the M&M's, the personalized yeah,
1: M&M's. M&M's another perfect example. The personalized M&M's, um, the uh, Coke have personalized bottles. Um, the There are lots of examples where, like, uh, even if you're, if you're bounty paper towels, you, like, you probably don't the world probably doesn't need a direct-to-consumer site for bounty paper towels, uh, comma, they license all the NFL football team's uh, logos uh, and print those, and the store's only of them at the beginning of football season. If you're a diehard fan and maybe you're having a party off-season, you might want to buy that remaindered Tampa Bay Buccaneers paper towel pack uh, that no store wants to inventory, right? So you can imagine like deep catalog, personalized products, uh, special gift packs. Um, the, uh, y- there are probably products in your ecosystem. Uh, I uh, Way before the this latest uh, Pepsi-co, uh, Free-to-Lay is owned by PepsiCo, so the the shop pantry side and the snack side are both, both PepsiCo. Um, PepsiCo's first direct-to-consumer was Gatorade, and they weren't selling $3 bottles of Gatorade. They were selling custom team packs of gatorade right like here's like the your exact mix and the quantity you want like in bulk for an entire team and so it was really a b2b site and that first b2b experience was so successful that pepsico launched a direct to consumer product called drinkfinity which was essentially like sport uh, it was like a, a nespresso for sports drinks right and you could order your own flavors and they you know, they didn't ship the water um, and they, they launched this direct to consumer only product called Drinkfinity. Um, there are lots of plays like that that make sense. And for a bunch of brands, they might make money like they might as a standalone business. It might make sense to do that. Right. Like the M&M site probably makes money. Um, on top of that, what else is happening? Uh, those companies are building a direct relationship with their 100,000 best customers. Right. I, that's Which is so key. Which may or may not be economically meaningful, um, but it's a huge, like, uh, the relationship Procter and Gamble used to have with their consumer is they paid 12 consumers to come to a focus group, right? And so having 100,000 people that actually shop and buy from you, I always tell this story. There's a a famous cookware company from France, La Crusade Cookware, right? Uh, And they're- uh, Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's this uh, legacy uh, uh, enameled cast iron cookware. um, And it's mostly sold through Macy's and Williams-Sonoma in the US. Uh, A number of years ago, they launched a direct to consumer site, right? And, you know, it's a much more expensive purchase. It's it's harder to ship. They carry a ton of colors and stuff that Macy's and Williams-Sonoma didn't stock all. So there's some argument for the fact that there might be demand, enough demand to, to have an economic value for that site. Um, but they're never going to sell anything close to the volume that William Sonoma is going to sell of their cookware, right? And at first blush, you'd be like, oh man, William Sonoma is going to be really mad that Lacrosse is selling direct, right? And in reality, William Sonoma was like, oh, it's totally cute that you guys are uh, <laughs> launching this little side business where you sell direct. We're not very threatened. But a couple things happened. Uh, Lockers say, learn through selling themselves that there's, the, and this will come as a total shock to you two guys. It turns out good product attributes are really important to having a good customer experience. <laughs> Sorry, could
0: you say that again and louder into yeah, the mic? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It turns yeah. out having great product content um, helps, helps uh, you, you, your, you improve your digital shelf and sell more stuff and launching their own site caused them to learn a lot more about what, Uh, it took to create good product content, Um, and they improved the content that they created and syndicated to Williams-Sonoma and Macy's, and my favorite example of this is they were seeing a bunch of searches on their website uh, for a product they didn't sell, and it's called a Dutch oven, and you go, wait, a Dutch oven's a super popular piece of cookware. Why wouldn't La Crusade sell a Dutch oven? Because La Crusade is a French company, and it's a French oven. (laughs) (laughs)
0: and they are not
1: yeah and it and we invented it in france and the dutch stole it and we would never call it a dutch oven right so locker say has this whole like catalog of french ovens and they were totally oblivious to the fact that the rest of the world that doesn't work for them call it a dutch oven right um and so all the searches on locker say were no results found what they you know, did, which any smart manufacturer would do, they created a page. This is why a French oven is better than a Dutch oven, right? And now all those searches for Dutch oven land on that page, and then it links to all their French ovens, and they learned to create content like that for Williams-Sonoma and Macy's as well. They would have never gotten the insight from Williams-Sonoma and Macy's that there were a bunch of searches for, for Dutch ovens that were going unfulfilled yeah I and feel was, like the, the, was the answer
0: yeah. to that was the answer to that that uh French ovens are a little bit snobbier and smoke more
1: uh totally possible and yet still are good at soccer despite the fact <laughs> that their lifestyle is totally unfit I don't get it but yeah so i'm I'm
2: a huge huge fan of their products um have a whole bunch of them there's there's a couple i mean there's a couple things that are so interesting about that first is there's two kinds of data that they're getting out of that experience one is the, the testing and buying data direct from consumer, which is really hard to get out of the retailers, especially most of the retailers won't break out in-store versus online. And, you know, you just, you get very little from them. The second is the the search and, and SEO data. I like, I, I remember at P&G, there was um, it was hard for them to call the bounce fabric softener sheets, dryer sheets on Amazon because nobody searches for fabric softener. They all search for dryer sheets. Um, I, w- I want to get, I want to get back to the the data for a minute. There's also, an element of test and learn Absolutely. Uh, if you if you own the consumer experience that you're able to do yourself that a retailer in general isn't going to allow you to do or is going to make harder or is going to make the, the data is not going to be available or the cycles are going to be longer and the testing and learning can give you leverage and negotiation so mccormick for example famously right before covid launched um, the old bay hot sauce direct to consumer online sold out within 30 minutes and now you can't buy it from mccormick but you know they say where to buy it and it's like every single grocer in america because they could use the data from that as as negotiating leverage i'm sure in in, in getting uh um, getting distribution contracts going
1: oh absolutely uh and i mean there's you know there's a ton of examples i i um tell this scared straight story to brands like you know i'll, I'll remind them like do you know how many like i'll uh, and this is why I'm not very popular, I'll go to Procter & Jan- Gamble and say, do you know how many billion-dollar brands you guys have launched in the last five years? And spoiler alert, the answer is zero, yeah. right? Um, or, but pick any CPG. Nobody, none of them have, have, like, have any huge new product successes. Their most derivative successes on stuff they invented 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and then you go, well, who gets all the buzz? It's all the direct-to-consumer companies, right? It's all these young, hip, hip companies. Um, uh, do you know how many of them sell a billion dollars a year? Zero, like not, not any, uh, do you know how many brands, targets launched in the last two years that sell over a billion dollars? Five new brands. In the last two years? In the last two years. Um, wow, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, so, so if you go, who's killing it, at product innovation and launching new products that consumers want? The answer is Target, right? And to a lesser extent, it's other retailers. It's, it's uh, Kroger, uh, Simple Truth is the best selling organic food brand in America. Uh, Kroger's global s- expansion strategy is not to open Kroger stores. They sell Simple Truth on on, on Tmall in China to Chinese consumers. They're a brand there, yeah. um, and you go, wait, why is it that? Uh, Brandless and uh, Bonobos can't create a billion dollar brand and p and and Smuckers can't create a billion dollar brand. But Target, Kroger and Walmart can create billion dollar brands left and right. Oh, They're on the consumer. Yeah, they, they have this thing called the relationship with the consumer. Exactly. And they they get to you know, they get better feedback. They get to test and learn. And so, like, increasingly, you go to any retailer and say, what's your big strategy against Amazon? We're going to make more products that Amazon can't sell. We're going to make exclusive products. They're not compared to national brand products. They're exclusive products with their own value prop. And so if you're a a brand, you go, oh, those guys are going to compete with me, and they have this huge intrinsic advantage in this customer intimacy. And so my argument, going back to your D2C point, is almost every brand needs to find a reason to have a D2C component not to generate uh, uh, net income dollars. Although that, that would certainly be nice, but because they need that source of data, they need that customer intimacy. I've seen brand, I mean, uh, uh, Under Armour like bought consumer apps like for customer intimacy, like things like my fitness pal. Like to me, that's brilliant, right? If you're a pet food brand, uh, you're, you're buying Rover to have a direct relationship with a bunch of dog walkers like the, you know, um, I, I think those things are more and more common because I think increasingly, you know, the, the, the business closest to the consumer is going to be the best position to win. It,
0: it's yeah. so many new muscles, Jason, for the brand manufacturers to build, though. It's really, you know, in, in talking to so many of these people, so to some of them, it's like, you want me to do what with who? You know, that's yeah. a huge
1: challenge. Um, uh, yeah. 100% agree. Uh, and it's, you know, it's innovators dilemma, they, they got very successful doing what they're doing. So it's hard, right? Like, and by the way, dirty secret, they're all called con- consumers in their name, none of them are consumer companies, they're B2B companies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're in the business of selling to Walmart, right? Like that, the most successful job there is the guy that can build the best relationship with the Walmart merchant. It's not that knows the customer the best, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are entirely new skills, and they need a moral imperative to develop those skills. And it, what usually works is a crisis, right? Like uh, for the toy industry, that crisis was Toys R Us going out of business. Yeah. Right? Um, And now for a bunch of other CPG industries, it's COVID.
0: And so when you think about, cause a lot of people are getting those skills and getting those products by acquiring these, uh, you know, D to C darlings. Do you feel like that trend is going to continue or some just going to sort of, uh, you know, put their big, big women boots on or whatever it might be and, and really start building it in house.
1: Yeah. I, I think all the above. I think we, we will continue to see acquisitions and more of them. Um, not necessarily because they've been hugely successful, but because uh, number one, a lot more of those independent companies are going to be economically distressed. Like almost all of them have like negative um, uh, customer acquisition costs to to lifetime values, um, right. and so they're they're mostly living off of venture capital. And you know, as a result of the the recession and COVID, that capital is going to be harder to get. So a bunch of you know brands will ultimately like get sold at a. A great value to to a lot of these these incumbent companies. Um, it also is a quick answer for the public markets when you don't look digital enough, right? You're Unilever and you buy Dollar Shave Club and now you, you have a good story. I haven't seen so many examples of Dollar Shave Club turning Unilever into an awesome digital company, right? Like I, I hope there are more examples, but like I know Unilever's hired two new chief digital officers since they bought Dollar Shave Club, and neither one of them was uh, Mike Rubin who founded Dar shave club and is awesome. Right. Like it, it feels more like Unilever happens to DAR shave club than Darshave shave club happens to Unilever. Like there are exceptions. There's the, the mattress guys that, um, and I like, there's so many mattress companies. I'm going to uh, forget which one, but, uh, the, t- the tough and needle acquisition, tough, yeah. tough and needle. Yeah. That felt like a little bit like a reverse acquisition. They're running seaweed yeah. now. Right. Um, uh, and so there's, there's some, but I, uh, I think it uh, it works better. Like I have more optimism in like the organic initiatives at Procter and Gamble to 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 launch you know uh, in, incubated companies out of the Procter and Gamble culture.
2: You know you know what's interesting. I think one of, one of my big theses, and you you've said this as it comes to apparel. Like apparel, the big change was going for major national trends that were you know often seasonal, but a lot of people got behind to now there's no such thing as a major national trend. There's just like thousands of these little trends that are happening to like, wow, major-
1: you really did listen to the podcast. That's amazing. <laughs> I did.
2: I took notes. Um, but, but, uh, I, I think that, you know, we've been using the the phrase that we're going from one mass market to a, to masses of markets, you know, where there's the market segmentation of the future is just going to be way more specific and granular. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a a PNG customer for, for a bunch of their products. I know Tide, you know, when on their tide product, there's a lot of different varieties of tide that can service basically whatever environmental or social or chemical restriction that you care about. You can buy a tide product basically to hit it. I kind of wonder if the future, if you were trying to build P and G today, you know, a conglomerate that has a bunch of brands and massive scale, whether the future P and G isn't like a thousand brands that each sell 300 million each, Rather than many dozens of brands that sell a billion each. you know what I mean there, there's it feels yeah. to me like there, there's some there's some truth in the matter that the brands haven't launched billion dollar brands, but maybe they don't have to maybe they just need to get better at niching down and and targeting consumers like more specifically at higher margin with better product.
1: No I, I think you're a hundred percent right. Um, the thing that has to happen for that to happen though is, There has to be an economically successful model for them to be able to do that, right? And I can think of two, and I I feel like we're moving towards both of them. A a a house of brands like Procter and Gamble could have a robust portfolio of those, you know, hundred million dollar brands. Their KPIs and unit economics aren't set up like that right now, right? So that would there, there would need to be a cultural shift to celebrate those brands. I, I have for yeah. many years done a bunch of work with VF Corp, which is a house of brands of apparel. And they mostly were looking for, you know, brands to grow over a billion dollars. And they kept coming to me and saying like, help us find some of these innovative, you know, young uh, brands to acquire. And I'd bring a bunch to them and they'd be like, yeah, none of these meet our criteria. They're all too small. And I'm like, <laughs> like that is like, that's the conundrum, right? Like all the cool hip brands are gonna be too small for your old criteria. You need to change your criteria Um, or to be standalone companies that could successfully be hundreds of millions of dollars. You need to have financed yourself for that outcome. Right. And at the moment, the reason I'm kind of all these DTCs are going to fail and get sold for cheap to Walmart um, is because they're all funded by venture capitalists that are looking for unicorns. Right. Like, and that's, that's the model. Like get over a billion dollars or fail. That's what the VC wants. And so that's what they have to do. Uh, I have a feeling that after the dust settles from this crop of those, the next crop, they're always going to be great entrepreneurs. And I'm super excited to see, you know, new startups. I'll bet you anything they're funded differently. Like I'll bet you they're funded by more angel investors and more crowdsourcing and more alternative funding means where they, they potentially could be a very successful, hundred million dollar a year company or like a $300 million a year company can employ a bunch of people, make a bunch of consumers happy, make a bunch of money. Like it, it can be a win for everyone except a venture capitalist that needs a 20 X return on their money. Yeah, like peak, peak design is my favorite example of the
2: kickstart. Oh my God. And
0: they're,
1: yeah.
2: they're fabulous. But uh, you know, one of the things that I've been seeing is, um, in the private equity space, there's a bunch of PE firms that are, um, backing the direct to consumer brands, but, but need a different kind of return so if you look at um like mid-ocean in new york for example um they're backing they're backing companies that are sort of like small cap manufacturing you're looking at the you know 50 million to 500 million range and looking for for growth in there and then there's other pe's that that look much smaller than that 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 i take a one or 5 or 10 million dollar d2c brand give them some money they're not expecting the billion dollar exit they're just expecting you know reasonable growth and and I, I think, I think there's a lot there. I mean, to get to your point though on the cultural change, uh, the the, na, the great Clayton Christensen who passed away re- fairly yeah, rest recently, rest yeah, um, wrote the Innovators Dilemma, and what you're talking about is nothing less than the Innovators Dilemma for brand manufacturers, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and again, you know, these these kind of like scary, um, you know, existential threats are the kind of things that tend to drive um people out of the the innovators dilemma conundrum right i mean
0: well i think uh you know when we're looking to angels as our saviors and and uh the the beginning of of another new era in brand manufacturing that feels like a great time for us to stop talking and just watch it all happen and be part of it so jason just thank you so much for for coming on the show and and this this we're going to post a mega episode so that everybody can get to hear everything we talked about because it's, it's really been a great conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, it was entirely my pleasure. really enjoyed talking to you guys. Thanks very much for the time.
0: You bet. Thanks for hanging in with our mega episode. If Jason's call to D2C Arms Inspired, you sign up for the sessions in our new D2C Strategy Playbook series, all the experts talking about all things D2C. More info at www.digitalshelfinstitute.org. In the meantime, follow us on the Institute's LinkedIn page. Tweet at us, please, at @windigitalshelf. Digital Shelf. If our content is useful, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. That's all the requests I have for now. And thanks for being part of our community.